Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A very warm welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you are in the world, it's great to have you with us. And today, I'm actually in a real-life studio and joined in person by two real-life magnificent authors. My first guest was a journalist before becoming a full-time writer and has now published four works of non-fiction and 15 novels, which include his Charles Hartman trilogy, On Green Dolphin Street and Where My Heart Used to Beat. Here to tell us about his latest novel, Snow Country, it's Sebastian Folks. Hello. Hello, Joe. Lovely to have you with us. Uh, oh, I feel a bit like a sort of ringmaster, actually, because you're on my left. And then on my right, my second guest, who's published 13 novels. He is a MacArthur Fellow and received the National Book Award. His novel, The Overstory, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, as is his latest, Bewilderment, which we'll be talking about today. Richard Powers, welcome to you. Oh, thanks so much. It's lovely to have you both here. And am I right in thinking you hadn't met before our coffee? earlier. Uh, no, that's right. We hadn't. But I've read Rich's books. In fact, I think I reviewed one of them once. And thank goodness. <laughs> yes. Thank goodness. I, uh, I really liked it. So it's a great pleasure. It could pleasure. have been awkward otherwise. Goodness. It could have been awkward. You should have checked it, really. Yeah. <laughs> and how is it being away from the Great Smoky Mountains, Richard, and being in the capital city of the UK? Yes, I've been, been living in more or less solitude for five years in the largest wilderness area in the eastern United States. I arrived at Heathrow on Sunday, and as the the old joke has it, that first step is a doozy. Because yeah. <laughs> I read uh, that you are surrounded by something like a half a million acres of yeah. wilderness. Or half, something, a, half a million acres for the national park, and then there's other government uh, wilderness land uh, to a total of about two million in the area. Wow. And it is the largest... Uh, dark spot in the eastern U.S. It's like one of the last places uh, east of the Mississippi where you can see the stars at night. Gosh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks very much for coming over to see us and leaving that behind for now. Uh, And over the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your brilliant two new books. We're going to talk about your writing, what you've read and enjoyed recently. And of course, we will do the book off, which is where each of you get to tell us about a book you love and think that we should all read. But before we get to that. Uh, can we talk about Snow Country? Um, 
this revisits the territory of one of your earlier novels, Human Traces, which was published, I think, 2005, if I remember correctly, Sebastian. Could you just um, set up the story of this book for us and sort of who and where it picks up from? Uh, yeah, uh, Snow Country is the second in a projected uh, trilogy, though God laughs when he hears <laughs> our plans. And as someone pointed out to me, don't leave it 15 years before the next one. Um, uh, Human Traces was uh, began in the last years of the 19th century, and it was about um, the pioneering struggle of two young doctors, one French, one English, to understand the human mind. And as we know, at that time, psychoanalysis was being invented by Freud, um, among other people, in Vienna. And the asylum system in, in this country had uh, was beginning to sort of clog up and fail because mm. it didn't really understand what was how people's minds worked and when, when they went wrong, why they went wrong. Uh, so that was that's the background of it. And it was, uh, you know, the theme of the book worked out through the lives of the characters was, you know, why are human beings so fragile? Um, and is our massive creativity and superiority to all other creatures on the planet in some way connected to some evolutionary change which admitted some extraordinary fragility and one in a hundred of us hears the voices of people who are not there and so on and so forth. Mm. So big questions. Mm. The big question, we know, why are we such a weird species? So, <laughs> you know, all the scientists and all the philosophers and all the novelists in the world put together are never going to answer that question satisfactorily. And I didn't answer it satisfactorily in Human Traces, though it was a, it was a, a book that I enjoyed writing and that was you know, well received. Yeah. But I knew I would come back to it. And so Snow Country takes, takes it up a little further into the 20th century. It's not a sequel, and my publicist will kill me if I <laughs> say it's a sequel. You don't need to have read uh, Human Traces before. But Snow Country begins in about 1910 with a young man called Anton, who is a student in Vienna and becomes a journalist. Uh, and it also is the story of a young woman called Lena, whose mother is a, a drunk and a prostitute. I'm, no easy way of putting this. Mm. Uh, and their lives as they attempt to make sense of them. And they uh, come together eventually uh, in the, about two thirds of the way through the book when they meet in the sanatorium called the Schloss Seblick which is set on a lake in the southeastern part of Austria, which is the very sanatorium founded by the guys in Human Traces. Absolutely right. It's, inc it's an incredibly interesting period, this, that you're covering. And I wondered what drew you to, to explore Austria in, in the first place. Um, well, there was a good historic reason that uh, Vienna was at the forefront of um, psychological medicine in the early years of the 20th century was very keen to export it to the United mm. States. Um, they feared very much that they were too Jewish and there would be a lot of anti-Semitism. Um, but it turned out that um, New York in particular was very receptive um, to psychoanalysis with, frankly, catastrophic results because it was then co-opted for use in, in general medicine for people who were psychiatrically unwell, where it was of, frankly, little use. Um, mm. But I think, you know, a more... A sort of immediate reason for me was I was staying with a friend of mine who's half Austrian on his mother's side and she had a little summer house on a lake and it was too small for me to stay in so I was sent to stay in the hotel over the road and there was something about the building the courtyard the houses the decoration of it um, which just really got me going and oh. I, I often find this that a house or a window or a light behind a curtain is the sort of <clears throat> stimulus that really gets you going and I thought 
this this hotel reimagined as a sanatorium where it's going to have to have another block added on but i can find that somewhere that's okay and i started drawing pictures and taking photographs and so it, that that's how it happened that's how it happened mm. and is that is is that ringing true for you too richard the the window the the door the hotel is that is that a spark for you sometimes it has been in the past yeah, yeah. uh uh, the inspiration for the last two books has moved away from the human world and into yes. the into the more than human world. But I will say, uh, by way of uh, podcast segue, that uh, <laughs> one thing that bewilderment does seem to share with e- human traces and perhaps no country is this fundamental question, what makes us such a weird species? Yes, it does. Uh, of course, that's a pretty fertile question for, for most uh, novelistic uh, speculation, but Bewilderment is the story of 39-year-old Theo Byrne, who's an astrobiologist, uh, a field that uh, didn't even exist when I was 39, uh, and he is a single father of an extremely unusual, uh, intense nine-year-old boy named Robin. Uh, he's at sea after the death of his wife, uh, which happens a couple of years before the start of the story. Uh, Robin's behavioral difficulties are getting more and more pronounced. Uh, he's uh, been thrown out of school for attacking a classmate. Uh, he's intensely angry uh, and frightened at uh, just about everything, but in particular at uh, his growing understanding of uh, humans' war against uh, all other creatures and the species extinction that we've seemed to have launched. And uh, Theo gets a couple of conflicting diagnoses about his son, uh, but he's under increasing pressure to medicate the boy, and the book is driven by that initial dramatic tension, uh, how to protect Robin from himself and from the rest of the world. Was there a... Because Robin is he's a very unusual and intense sort of child. Yeah. Was there a spark of inspiration for the character at all? Yeah, yeah. there was indeed. Uh, I had a very troubled nephew, my sister's son, uh, who was one of the models for Robin. Right. Of course, you know, when we composite a character, so much changes. But uh, I was channeling my own sense of bewilderment in in the face of my nephew when I was thinking about this relationship, this this great love relationship between father and son, but extremely tense and and, uh, uncertain uh, relationship. I also had uh, a a gifted uh, but different uh, niece on my wife's side of the family Mm. uh, that was uh, something of an inspiration as well. And then the the, uh, child of a colleague uh, at the university where I had taught for many years, so all three of these children uh, were present in my mind. Robin is himself. And I, I'm, I'm merely saying that uh, in trying to build out that texture of uh, what it means to fall far from the mode or the mean of, of a normal distribution curve, mm. uh, I, I did uh, remember uh, with great love and affection all three of these children. Yeah. yeah. And you, you mentioned this just earlier about the sort of uh, crossover themes between these these books, and I wrote I wrote a question down early, which I thought I I couldn't ever I couldn't phrase the end of it quite right because I was wanted to talk about the the characters question you know human beings their behaviour that that we talk about being dysfunctional mm. and I put the question what's wrong with us mm. that's how I put the question <laughs> yeah. and I just wondered there's a better way of asking this but 
as you as you said, Richard, that, that these themes do crop up in both. And what was it, Sebastian, that or what is it that draws you to 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 think about this in your work? I just think it's an endlessly fascinating question. And, I mean, in Richard's book, uh, you know, in a way, there's nothing wrong with Robin. He's the most yeah. beguiling character, the most complete, clever, truth-telling. You love his company. Yeah. Um, and there is a, you know, continuing debate, really, uh, in psychiatry and psychology about, you know, whether people are ill, how we define illness, and, and so on and so forth. But in the uh, in the process of, of writing uh, Human Traces, I, I met... A lot of people and went to a lot of hospitals and did a lot of research but one of the most remarkable people I met was schizophrenic very severely so but had remarkable periods of remission mm -hmm. in which she had a huge insight into her condition and being a very very nice woman um, she used these periods when the drugs were exactly right holding all the symptoms tolerably I'm not not getting rid of them to uh, instruct the police as a sort of social worker and if you pick up someone who is distressed it may be because of this uh, and, you know, how do you define what is ill? But I think she, although she was sort of simultaneously what in the 19th century would have been called insane and totally sane and intelligent and very kind, I think she would certainly have accepted that she was unwell mm. um, because she suffered so greatly and in the end, I believe, took her own life. Mm. So... But you know, where do you where do you draw definitions, and how hope, how helpful are definitions mm -hmm. anyway? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. With regard to the question on the macro level, what's wrong with us as a species? How did we get so incredibly alienated from everything else on this planet? Uh, that lies at the heart of bewilderment as well. Uh, Robin and Theo. Uh, are struggling with a, a, a question that's intrinsic to the field of astrobiology, which is if the universe is three times older than the Earth, if there are something on the order of a hundred billion galaxies, each of which has a hundred billion stars in it, uh, and each of these stars has you know several planets, uh, we now believe, where is everybody? It's called the Fermi Paradox. Why are we getting nothing but great silence from out there? Uh, we, we, ought, we ought to see uh, signs all over the place. And Robin comes up with his own answer to the Fermi Paradox at one point in the course of the book. He's saying, you know, it may be, you know, in, in, his, in his boy's formulation, he says, you've, you've taught me about these things called great filters. You know, may, may, maybe it's too hard for life to get started. Maybe it's too hard for complex life to get started or conscious life to get started. But it may be that the real filter is still coming for mm -hmm. us, that the, that the evolution of consciousness itself is unstable. You give a creature that much power, and yet you know, still put them in the body of an animal. That's an unstable configuration. Mm. As E.O. Wilson says, you know, we, uh, we have space, we have godlike technologies, we're stuck in medieval institutions, and we're running around in Paleolithic hardware. It's a, it's a bad combination. Do you think it's possible that um, the evolution of consciousness will be selected against? And that, I mean, since, frankly, consciousness has been of little use to homo sapiens in my opinion um that um it will actually we will we will lose this sort of 
superhero facility over the coming mm. hundreds of mm. thousands and indeed millions of years. We're certainly running that experiment. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think uh, consciousness has emerged in various forms on Earth in, in limited or uh, different ways. And, you know, the, uh, the, the book is very concerned with this idea of difference. You know, how many ways can consciousness manifest itself? Uh, the necessity to preserve biodiversity is also the necessity to preserve, preserve human diversity. But Robin and Theo both are, uh, over the course of the book, uh, discover how many ways life has of having agency, of having intelligence, of being aware that aren't like our awareness. And it may be that our awareness is intrinsically unstable and others might be more successful. Mm -hmm. yeah. And do you see the book ultimately as a hopeful story? Ooh, we've, we've hit the money question. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you mean by hope a commitment to engage in the future, this book is absolutely hopeful. Mm -hmm. This book is precisely about how to find hope in what looks like a hope, hopeless situation. Yeah. It's a complex question of how to get there. Uh, the, the book loses hope for the culture that we've created, the culture of human exceptionalism, hmm. uh, the culture of uh, commodity-mediated meaning, you know, meaning uh, as accumulation, right? Um, yet it, it finds enormous hope in the possibility of recovering those cultures that emphasized interconnection and reciprocal relations with the neighbors, thinking of ourselves as one among many, not as, as this uh, species that has been given the right to go forth and uh, dominate and mm. subdue the earth. Yeah. yeah. And Sebastian, if I could just talk about the third part of this trilogy. I know no. you've only just published this one, but you did say, oh, I won't wait another 15 years. Are you already thinking about what, what might finish the trilogy off? Um, yes, I, I have a vague idea. I mean, actually, one of the nice things about having a book out is going around and meeting people and doing events and so on. Well, it's not always nice. It can be rather <laughs> exhausting and uh, if you suffer from travel sickness, etc. But, I mean, some of the questions that you, you get asked do do so little seeds in your mind. And some of the questions you get asked are, you know, frankly ridiculous. But uh, I remember being asked at a festival once by somebody uh, stood up in about 500 people, a hall, said, I'm not really enjoying your present book. I'm about 30 pages from the end. What reason can you give me to carry on? <laughs> so I, I said, well, I'm not going to beg. But then, of course, I did. Uh, but uh, no, somebody asked a question which has given me an idea. Um, the, 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 my my problem really is the, is the time scale, and it's probably got, it doesn't have to be. I mean, just as I, I started eighteen ninety, and then Snow Country ends in um, uh, nineteen thirty four. You know, Hitler's just been yeah. uh, just come to power in Germany. We all know what's coming. I don't really. I mean, I've touched on the Second World War quite a few times actually. Where my heart used to beat, for instance, mm -hmm. there's a lot about the Italian campaign in that. 
I don't really want to go there again. I have nothing to say about Nazis, really, mm. and I need to find some sort of something tangential. But that's that's not that's that's possible. That's feasible. But of course, I might flip back. You know, that because they're not sequels and yeah. prequels, I could easily go back to 1905. But I do know roughly what it's going to be about. It's going to be about some some form of transcendence because it may be the last novel I write. You know, and I'm, I'm I'm of a pensionable age, and you know, as you but said, you don't because, look at those. About I know. You. I don't. Yes, yes, yes. But like the queen you know i feel it was like, <laughs> <laughs> real. um but you know one has to plan for some sort of uh, conclusion um so maybe but I, I yes i have an idea but i'm doing something else in the meantime right okay mm. okay fantastic mm. um before we do the book off i always love to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently whether that be something brand new or stuff for research um is there a book, a few books that you've read and enjoyed, Richard, that recently that you'd like to just tell us about? Well, what I've been reading in recent weeks is the rest of the book, a shortlist. Right, and, yes. Uh, and congratulations on the shortlist. I don't think oh, I said you. that earlier. Yeah, yeah thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I, I read four while in the U.S., and I wasn't able to get hold of Nadi for Mohammed's The Fortune Man because it doesn't come out there until December, but I picked it up uh, here on Sunday and I'm about halfway through and I just have to say uh, you know it, it was dismaying of course because ev everyone that I finished I thought well no need for an acceptance speech <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, it was also just delightful as well every one of these books sets an author contract that it completely fulfills mm -hmm. uh, no book on that list is at all comparable to any of the other books on the list so you know bravo to the judges for mm. picking such a diverse list uh, but they 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 really do excel each of them on their own terms and i learned a lot by by reading the list i uh, uh used to host the the booker prize podcast and every year it was just one of the most sort of wonderful things to get sent the long list you know mm. in the post yeah. and they said there you go that's the long list and you may be talking to mm. some of these authors and you know like we did richard a few years right. ago for the overstory right. and it it always is so amazing to get sent books anyway, but then to have this sort of, as you say, such a diverse range of, yeah. of novels, you know, and discovering voices that I probably wouldn't have picked up. It's, yeah, it's really, it's magical, actually. Yeah. yeah. And what about you, Sebastian? Anything that you'd like to mention from... Yeah, I'm, well, I'm reading two books at the moment, which I, I quite often do uh, read a couple what, at the together? same time. Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, one of them is called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived by <laughs> Adam Rutherford, who's a geneticist. It's a great title. And uh, he's a very, very good writer. And But it, it, it is quite complicated if you don't have a scientific background or education, which I don't. I mean, I did about sort of two terms of, of chemistry and physics. So I, I've never had a biology lesson in my life. <laughs> Right, most of my adult life has been spent sort of repairing the damage of my education. <laughs> Not the damage, but the, the absences. Mm. History as well. I never had a history lesson, didn't you? really. Well, I mean, tiny bits, but after a certain age, I didn't. So, but th this is a very interesting book, and, you know, you, you learn more and more, and it's an area in which we learn more and more every day as it seems that new hominin species are discovered. Um, and it now looks that, you know, Homo sapiens was sort of hanging out in a bar with half a dozen other mm, humans. Yeah. And, you know, it would talking about exceptionalism and so on, you know, not so much. Right. I right. turn out to be 3% Neanderthal myself. <laughs> and I think, you know, future saliva tests may reveal, you know, what, who knows what other homo uh, species may be in mm. there. So that's, that's for the sort of um, 
that's for slow reading and sort of bit of underlining and going back yeah. and making sure you understand. And then in tandem with that, I'm reading a novel called Winchelsea by a guy called Alex Preston, a young uh, novelist, which is a sort of rip-roaring pirate uh, mm. story about smuggling and gangs. And uh, it's a sort of like, I don't know if you remember a book called Moonfleet by a guy called Faulkner, J. Mead Faulkner. It was a, it was a sort of children's book of many years ago. Okay, well, this, is, no. this is sort of reimagined for, for grown-ups. It's particularly fun for me because my parents-in-law live in Winchelsea. <laughs> but Alex Preston's book is you know set in the, the 19th, 18th century, mm. and it's all about pirates and smuggling. And there's something called the Hawkehurst Gang. Well, Hawkehurst is you know where we go for a glass of sherry on Boxing Day, so <laughs> it's a rather comic that's with it but it's written with tremendous brio and uh, I'm, I'm not far into it but I'm really enjoying it interesting Fantastic. that you have one fiction and one non-fiction I will mm. also read uh, two books at once providing that they're not both fiction or both non-fiction mm. I can I can do this you know the di two different modes of, of reading uh, yeah so long as yeah, you straddle that divide I think it's helpful yeah, yeah. and do you and is one is one for sort of dip the, the non-fiction for dipping in yeah I think I think I mean it's a it's a crude binary but uh, you know one one is for kind of effective identification and the other is for cogitation mm -hmm. and, yeah I mean they, they feed off each other you know if mm. you can you know. But, but at any given moment in the day, one just seems preferable to the other. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Well, it's time. Thank you very much. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you so much for those recommendations. It's time for another now because it's time for the book off. And this is where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you love that you think we should all read and you have three minutes each to do so you don't have to use those three minutes if you don't want to but i'm going to put the timer on and if you're still talking at the three minute mark you're either going to get rung out by the school bell or honked out by the bicycle horn so uh let's find out who's going to go first who's going to go second uh, richard as you've traveled the furthest mm. to be here would you like to go first or would you like to go second well i would like to go first okay then right. and sebastian at the three minute mark if you hit it would you like the school bell or the bicycle horn 
I'd like the bell, please. Okay, fine, no problem. Uh, now, before we set the timer off, Richard, could you just tell us the book that you're putting forward, yeah. please? You know, I, I absolutely loved this assignment, you know, and how off the wall it is. I, I, you, you, for the listeners, just to just to put the ground rules, make, make them explicit, you asked for any book whatsoever. I did. So long as we were passionate about it. Correct. And uh, that made it both... Uh, wider open, more difficult. Yeah. Uh, since you cannot see a person blush on podcasts, <laughs> I feel safe to say I considered and could very easily have done a bird song mm-hmm. because this is a book that I have long been passionate about. I learned about it uh, from Frank Conroy, who directed the I Will Writers Workshop for many years, the most influential school for uh, writers in the U.S. And Conroy, I think, uh, assigned this book for generations, and whenever a writer comes out of Iowa uh, from that time period uh, who produces a, a strong historical novel, such as Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle on the shortlist for the Booker, I think uh, another of, of uh, Sebastian's Godship. <laughs> um, what, you know, what an astonishing book. I mean, uh, gripping, deeply moving, deeply informative, does everything you, you'd want a book mm. to do. Uh, but I thought that wouldn't work for me because that meant Sebastian would win either way. <laughs> so I I went with an old standard, uh, In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust, which is cheating in so many ways. I mean, you get seven books for the price of one. I mean, you, nobody gets any points for recommending... Uh, you know, a, a, a time-honored classic of world literature that's 100 years old. But there were some fun things that I thought I could say about it. Well, we look forward to hearing them. Mm. Uh, I'm going to put the three minutes on the clock. We will stay silent, and it's over to you yeah. to tell us all about In Search of Lost Time, Richard. Huh. Actually, I'm now just reminded of the Marcel Proust summarizing contest <laughs> on, in, from Monty Python. Uh, I, I came across the book... At a remarkable age, it was just 20, when I had just decided that I wasn't going to be a physicist after all, that I was going to devote my life to words. And it was recommended to me by a very influential older friend whose tastes uh, uh, definitely influenced my mind uh, way out of proportion to what uh, how they should have. But uh, uh, he said, here, have this, and he gave me the first volume, and I opened it up, and I looked at that first sentence. I read it in English. Uh, and in the classic English translation, it was, you know, for a long time, I would go to bed early. And I thought, what the hell is this? It was the most mysterious opening I had ever seen. And I couldn't figure out what the tense relationship was. Like, where are we, you know, wh- what was anterior to what? You know, wh- wh- where are we in this? And I began to read, and I was instantly lost in this rambling, periodic, loose syntax that just seemed to be about, about, you know, from some 30,000 feet up, just immerse, a, a full immersion in the human senses. And I began reading the book. I think it took me a year to read a volume and a half of this book in little bits and pieces. It's so rich and so dense. And it was really about uh, this astonishing style and this astonishing sensibility. You know, this this full immersion in in uh, a, a, the, the kind of a multi-sensory mode of being alive. Um, 
rapidly running out of time here and I'm nowhere. <laughs> uh, so I, I read it over the course of the next several years, much of it out loud uh, in tandem with the woman who I was living with at the time. We would read it to each other in bed. That, of course, only added to the deep, uh, uh, lifelong impressions that the book made on me. Uh, and it, as I was learning to write, I was it, it, just entranced with this idea of blending the dramatic, the introspective, uh, the discursive, you know, it was ev everything. It was, it was the universe in a nutshell. I set it aside for many years, having finished it, came back to it, started reading it a second time, and I thought, I've missed everything. This is one of the funniest books I'd ever seen. It's, it's a deeply penetrating social satire. It is, you know, the, I mean, all those other things were still there, but I had missed so much. And, and going back to, as, as an older man huh. and looking at it again, of course, I was looking now at new translations, so that's part of the story as well. But the, the uh, insights into sexuality, into jealousy, into uh, social climbing... <laughs> Well, I did my best. <laughs> I feel it's always the worst thing knowing knowing that, that an author is, is mid-flow and I have to reach for this ridiculous bicycle horse. <laughs> it's like being on the Today programme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have to stop you there, just as you're getting just, into just it. Just as you're getting into it. Yeah, bye-bye. Um, oh, fab. Thank you, Richard. Uh, we'll come back and talk about Proust again very shortly. You can have a breather now, maybe have some water. Um, so there we go, Sebastian. That's that, that, You've got to follow that. Just tell us which book you're putting forward. Uh, well, you know, I wanted to choose Proust, obviously. But yeah. uh, Powers got in there first, the bastard. Um, very good account of it, too. It is, it's just like being alive in someone else's skin. And uh, I, wonderful. I was a bit older when I... But I also had that thing of reading out passages to my then-girlfriend on holiday. Say, look, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. And the read out a whole paragraph. It was actually oh, a whole paragraph being often just one sentence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievably wonderful book. Um, I have chosen something very, very different by an American journalist called Patrick Radden Keefe, who is in a great tradition of American long-form journalism. Uh, and it's called Say Nothing, and it's about the IRA in Northern Ireland. Wow, OK, very different. Well, we'll we will await to hear about it. Uh, three minutes back on the clock for you to tell us about Say Nothing. One of the bad things about this country was I was about 15 when the trouble started in Northern Ireland and through my teens and 20s and 30s, every night, this grim stuff on TV, these people with hate-filled voices who'd kneecapped each other, tarred and feathered, murdered innocent women and children. It was a constant drone in the background of one's life. Mm. Uh, and then living in London, there were explosions. I know people who were injured or, you know, it's just it was just a terrible thing. I know a lot of journalists who've reported on it, um, but I suppose sufficient time has now passed um, that it's time for someone to tell the story in from a dispassionate way. And being American, I think, though presumably I think of, uh, of Irish ancestry, he, he's in a very good position to do so. And there was a guy called David Halberstam who used to write for The New Yorker, I think, who was also extremely good at this sort of very, very long form, brilliant narrative, but at the same time, highly respectable, double fact check journalism mm. told as though it were a story, a mm. thriller almost. Mm. And uh, Patrick Radden Keefe follows the lives of really quite a few, only a handful of people in Belfast, starting with a family called McConville. And the mother was abducted and presumably killed, but the IRA always denied it. And he follows uh, Sean Hughes, who's one of the leaders of the provisionals, Jerry Adams, 
who is the commander of the IRA, though denies it, it follows in a car slightly behind and never getting his hands mm. dirty. Mm. But uh, And the Price sisters who were behind the Old Bailey bombing in London and various other terrorist atrocities. And we, we go through their, their hunger strikes in prison uh, and all the damage and the, the heartbreak and the violence and the suffering and into the peacekeeping process, at which point uh, Jerry Adams disowns them, they feel. So these former terrorists are all suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. They're all become alcoholic or psychologically damaged. They're all drinking themselves to death. They're feeling the fallout of what they've done. And as Jerry Adams enters the political process and suddenly denies having been in the IRA and says, no, I was Sinn Féin, I've always been a respectful politician all along, blah, 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 they, uh, they feel utterly betrayed. And although it's hard to have sympathy for terrorists, there's an absolutely chilling line when Dolores Price says, what Jerry doesn't understand, we didn't just risk our lives, we had to kill people. Mm. And the bitterness and the anger that they feel towards this man, though, of course, we uh, in, in England and in Britain and the world generally are grateful to the political maneuverings on all sides and to Tony Blair and to John Major before him, who mm. eventually brought this terrible, terrible sectarian war to an end. Uh, this is a very exciting, human, sad, but um, thrilling book. Wow. With five seconds to spare as well, oh, Sebastian. Look at that. Well done. Um, gosh, I mean, there's. So, I want to talk about both of these so much. We can spend another hour talking about them, I think. Um, to come back to Proust first, mm. if I may, and obviously you've read this, Sebastian, you know of of Proust's work and, and this book in particular I don't because mm. I'm woefully underread um, and yet hearing you talk about it Richard and um, I, you know and and the fact that you came back to it reread it and then saw the got the humour and the satire from yeah, it block out a couple of years yeah well, yeah, well I, I could do that mm. um, and read it out loud apparently that's the way to be done right it, it's it's luscious and and these these you know this loose long syntax you know flowing over pages I think is very musical and in fact music plays a big part in the book yeah. uh, both uh, at at the element of story but also in the preoccupation of the consciousness of the narrator and did you read it? Again, Sebastian, or have you, you only read it once? My reading of it has been very stop-start. Right. I've, I've read the beginning many times. Mm. I've read the end um, perhaps twice, and I've skipped bits in the middle. Right. I mean, there are bits which are hard going. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's the military, uh, the time in the military academy of one of uh, the narrator's friends, which is, I mean, it's the sort of Anna Perna, it's the Matterhorn, it's the Everest of, mm. of getting through. Mm. I mean, really, mm. really tough. Right. But it is funny, as Richard said, but it's it's also... I mean, uh, what I love about it is the way that a, a whole life could be summed up in a paragraph, and as as the as the subordinate clauses roll, and it's like a musical yeah. phrase, it descends and it descends, and then finally it's clinched as the syntax is pulled tight yeah. at the end of the sentence. I mean, so much of it is about the subversion of time, and he uses prosody mm. to create that you know expansion and contraction. Mm. Uh, I mean, there is a section near the beginning where his mother is carrying him down the stairs, and it just seems to go on. You know, in 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 narrative time, it's ten seconds, but in in book time, or am I reversing these two? But in any case, uh, you know, in the consciousness of the narrator, it expands, you know, indefinitely. And then later on, uh, when when the narrator lives through World War One, which of course you know is a four year duration. 
it's you know in the book it's nothing it's just this odd little yeah uh, you know. no they get trying to get a good night kiss from his mother in the audio book my wife was driving our son to university in leeds from london and it wasn't until they were almost back in london that he said my son's like, oh, finally his mother's kissed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, wow. a lot happens while he's waiting. A lot happens. Wow. Long change, je me suis couché de bonheur. It is a wonderful opening. It's like a sort of bell, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, would, and so for when I go and pick up this tome to mm. read, am I to immerse myself in it or is it the sort of thing... I'll have some, an, an, you know, another book on the go at the same time, and just no. I think the best way is to let it wash over okay. you, you know, a, a, as you lead your life. I mean, this idea of involuntary memory—that somehow, you know, memory is this two-way thing. It's a posting forward into the future, and at some point in the future, some physical trigger mm-hmm. will return us to the, the visceral, you know, inhabitation of a moment uh, in a way that we can't generate consciously we can't you know to 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 really participate in that sense of the involuntary nature of time and retrieval of time and and uh destruction of time i think it's best to just uh, take it as it comes at you. And, okay. yeah. But the, prop- the, the interesting proposition behind it, I think, is that we've been talking about consciousness and human yeah. exceptionalism. Yeah. And if human consciousness is different from the kind of consciousness experienced by other creatures, it is a lot to do with, the, with memory. It's to do with the experience of your senses being connected with memory so that you can actually understand what you're feeling. Mm. So there's some neural connection possibly there which other people don't have. So the argument that Proust doesn't make explicit but implicit in the book is that uh, a human experience is is most fully human when memory is involved. Mm. And until or unless memory is involved and you're exploiting Mm -hmm. the solely human neural connection that we have, the first time you do something... it's more animalistic. It's only in recollection that, and it's more fully lived and more fully humanized. Yeah. Mm. Wow. I mean, uh, well, I loved hearing you talk about it, Richard, and and I love that. Yeah, this book just sounds amazing. I definitely need to read it, and I really want to read "Say Nothing" as well, Sebastian. And I loved your pitch for it. Um, I I feel like I've recently and only very recently got into this long form journalism. This sort of um, so I, I get the New Yorker and I, I, I'm starting to really read and enjoy and learn from these big articles, you know. And, and you said something about um, the double fact-checking and the writing it almost mm. like a thriller. I feel like this is a book I need to read for so many reasons, <laughs> because I need to know the history, uh, but also because... It's so important. Like journalism now is so important, I think, as it always was. But there are there are things I'm reading where you think, I don't know if has someone just said that. You know, has someone just is that someone's is that an opinion piece as opposed to being properly researched? And it sounds like this is very much a, a properly researched piece of work. Sure is. Yeah. In, in making it gripping narratively, does he use novelistic kinds of things? Does he create scenes? Is there direct discourse? Um, well, there's 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 a lot of interviews, yeah. um, but I think you know, as in most storytelling, it's a question of when you choose to release the information. Mm-hmm. And there's an ex- extraordinary thing when when someone's been a, they believe the IRA or the provisional IRA believe someone's been a snitch has been in touch with the British military or British intelligence, they put them in a car and they take them over the border uh, and they kill them. 
Uh, and there's a guy they take over the border who is so charming um, and so unaware of what's happening to him that they can't bring themselves to kill him and they have to call in uh, people from the Republic to, you know, to do the job for them. And there's a particular killing where there's a mysterious person who is there and no one knows who it is. And at the end of the book, um, he believes, he reveals that who, who the, the missing person is. So this is all proper journalism, but it's it, the way that it's, it's novelistic is, is, is the moment you choose to release the information. Mm, yeah. I mean, just, it, it, it sounds like it might, is it hard going in places? No, it's, it's no. very easy to read. Right, I mean, okay. although upsetting. Upsetting, mm, of yeah. course, but it's actually a very accessible yeah. read. Okay. Well, I mean, two fabulous pictures, two fabulous books. Where does one go? Um, Use the Booker Cup out to say we both win. You just say <laughs> you both win. <laughs> yes, it's, it's well, the Booker Cup. They Booker got in trouble for that. They got in trouble yeah. for that. Yeah. Uh, I have done that before, Richard, now, and then it, just goes, it goes down like a lead balloon. <laughs> I'm, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to take Say Nothing. I think, I, think I, I loved both of these pictures. I think... Proust should obviously be read, and I need to read Proust as well. But um, there's something about that. I think the the dispassionate way of of looking back on this thing, and then the accessibility mm. and the journalistic approach to it. I think. Well, it's the kind of journalism we can't afford anymore in this country. Yeah. There you go. Mm. There you go. And I think that's you've you've. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Summed up exactly what I've been trying to say, I think, <laughs> in one sentence. Um, but now I'm going to go and check out In Search of Lost Time so that, and maybe spend 2022 reading it. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Snow Country by Sebastian Folks is out now. It's published by Hutchinson and Bewilderment by Richard Powers. is also out now, published by Hutchinson Heinemann. It's been such a pleasure having you both here in person. Uh, lovely to see you both again. And uh, thank you so much for your recommendations. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you. 